0: Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and today we welcome Ben Vaughn into our world, the world of performance anxiety. Ben is one guest whose career left no room for performance anxiety. He was always that guy who was super into music, but even though he had a genuine love of it, he started a family and worked as a landscaper in New Jersey for a while. But once he started playing, he was hooked. Until Pulp Fiction, though, he was a man out of his time. But when his surf-rock-influenced album Instrumental Stylings coincided with the release of Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, combined with a chance comment on the radio show Morning Becomes Eclectic, Ben's career changed. He began writing music for TV and movies, which had such quick turnarounds, he had no time for performance anxiety. The first of these was the classic third rock from The Sun. We discuss all of this, our mutual love of AMC cars, turning his Rambler into a studio... Recording an engine solo for his song and his radio show and podcast, The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. We also talk about his latest album, The World of Ben Vaughn, and a whole lot more. It's a fascinating discussion on an unusual career in music and TV. So follow Ben at Ben Vaughn Music on Instagram. Check out benv.org for more links. Pick up his new album, The World of Ben Vaughn, Everywhere Music Is Picked Up. Follow us at Performance A&X on the socials, interesting merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. send a coffee our way at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety and now prepare to enter the curious world of ben vaughn on
1: performance anxiety part of the pantheon podcast network okay hello i'm ben vaughn and you are listening to performance anxiety and i have a new record coming out by the way i guess i should mention that it's called the world of ben vaughn thanks for listening Okay. There, how about now? Yes. There we go. All right. Right on. We we have signal. Yes.
0: <laughs> awesome. All right. Oh, my gosh.
1: How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Good. Things are a little. Things are a little nuts, but you know I'm good. <laughs> oh, I I know the feeling. Been running
0: around here the last minute trying to get dogs quiet and settle down and uh, get my notes up. So. Thank you for joining me. I've been uh, catching up on your discography, and I love it. It's so so much fun to listen to.
1: Oh yeah, well thank Excuse you, me. thank you. Um, I I I don't listen to it myself that often, but I'm I'm, I'm glad it brings you joy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can imagine that. I don't know. how I mean.
1: I yeah, think most, would... arti- m- most, most artists don't listen to their own work because they're, work- they're moving on to the next thing. You know.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. it be kind of weird to listen to your work from not just two years ago, but 20 years ago. That's got to be a little weird, I guess. It is. It I don't, is. I don't like editing my podcast because I got to listen to my own voice. I can't imagine wanting to go back and listen to my old episodes.
1: I think so. the only person who likes the sound of their own voice is Sting. <laughs> or Mick Jagger maybe maybe but I'm certain about Sting yeah. <laughs> no, he probably listens to himself all day long oh I'm sure I'm sure there's that guy <laughs> he's got a good voice he does have a good voice though
0: yeah but I don't know I never got into his solo stuff a song
1: here or there but never I don't know it's hard for yeah. it, it it was over my head yeah it's, it's, it's just kind of over my head like i'm i appreciate what you're doing but there's no way i'm going to be able to like grasp you know or
0: at least he thinks it's over my head and so maybe that's why i don't well
1: leave. that's that's probably
0: true <laughs> yeah
1: that's probably what it really is Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're from new jersey i lived in jersey for well twice but for the longest time of, for 13 years and you lived in Jersey twice? Yes.
1: Well, neither wow. one of them was the first, by my choice. The first, okay, I was going to say the first time didn't teach you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, the first time I was three. And then we moved to Virginia and then moved back up to New Jersey and I lived there for 13 years after that, so. Wow. Yeah, Central Jersey. So I was not too far away from where you grew up. I was in, uh, I was in a little town called Neshanic Station right around Branchburg. and uh, Okay. So yeah, they had a big flea market that everybody in New Jersey knows about for some reason.
1: And the English Town, English Town Flea Market? No, or? no, that was a little
0: more Southern. Um, it was in the Shanick Station, the Shanick Station Flea Market. It was, uh, maybe it was just big in, in the two counties that bordered it, but it, but that's everybody I knew anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but it was Central Jersey. So we were like uh, an hour and a little over an hour to New York, a little over an hour to Philly. So. Got a chance to go see a bunch of shows in both areas, which was a lot of fun growing up, uh, you know, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s when I started seeing shows. So, so it was a really good good era, good place to, to get into
1: music. I totally agree. Uh, I, I make New Jersey jokes, but <clears throat> I grew up right across the river from Philly. And what the music I grew up with and the opportunities that were there for me, plus the ability to just hop on a bus and be in new york city in greenwich village yeah go to a jazz club or whatever you know i mean a fantastic place and radio was just amazing
0: yeah you got those great new york and philly stations you know cbs fm was i grew up on cbs fm cousin brucey was uh, that was
1: that was my guy
0: when i was a kid yeah he had the uh his show i got i don't know if it was friday nights or saturday nights i don't remember when i was growing up and uh we would call in. I was a little kid. And my dad had has uh, cassettes where he, he recorded me and my brother calling in and talking to cousin Brucey for a little while. It was hilarious. Ah, wow, that's great. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. It's so much, just great memories. Uh, and We went to the old cars. My dad and I used to restore and hot rod old cars, so that all fed into the old, you know, loving the old fifties you know, and sixties music, and it was just it was just a great time.
1: Wow, that sounds great.
0: That was my childhood. Your childhood, was there a lot of music growing up in your house, or uh, were, were you kind of like the, uh, the black sheep of the
1: family being interested in music, or was it all around you? Or? No, I was the black sheep for sure. Uh, my dad was a TV repairman, a real working class guy who yeah. thought all showbiz people were phonies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Got, there was no encouragement there. And yet he was repairing TVs. Where all the phonies exactly. made their living. Yeah. But all the guys on TV made more money than him. Yeah. <laughs> angry about that. <laughs> I, I understand mom, that. Yeah. My mom was great. She was a, um, a fashion artist for gimbal's department store back in the forties. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she was a model back in the forties. So like that whole Catherine Hepburn look there's a lot of photographs of her and she, and she gave all that up like women did back in the late forties to become a housewife. And yeah, Start raising kids, and my dad, you know, was it was a very working class guy, and uh, she went with it. Wow. And so I, I grew up with like my mom was like a closet intellectual. Oh, she was okay. a very, very artistic person. She listened to Jacques Brel, and she spoke French and everything. But yeah. and she of the three kids, I was the one who who inher- inherited the artistic ability. So she taught me how to draw and paint when I was really little. But music, rock and roll. My uncle gave me a Dwayne Eddy record when I was six years old. Oh, good and choice. I played it, yeah. He worked at RCA in Camden oh. and they had a pressing plant there. And Dwayne Eddy was on RCA records and they would give the employees free records. There was a big you know, stack of them at the door and he would just grab a bunch and he gave me one, the Dwayne Eddy record. Oh, man. And it changed my life. And this was before the Beatles. Uh, this would be like 1962, maybe. Oh, okay. When the twist was really big. And, um, you know, American Bandstand was on TV every day. And that was, that was coming out of Philadelphia. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the radio was just filled with doo-wop, doo-wop music. And so I grew up ba- basically with doo-wop music as my first doo and the twist and the mashed potato and all that stuff is my first influence oh man that's awesome yeah it's kind of hard and dwayne eddie so yeah. instrumental <laughs> instrumental rock and roll dwayne Eddy the ventures and all that but also black music you know uh, rhythm and blues vocal groups and dd sharp mm-hmm. and and uh, the orlans and all that stuff
0: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset and a special offer to performance anxiety listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com performanceanxiety performance anxiety. That's better performanceanxiety performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast.
1: Yeah, it pushed uh, our, well, when I was 12 years old, I started playing drums in a band and I, and I, I did the solo to wipe out and I got a, you know, a, a roul, rousing, uh, ovation for it. <laughs> wow. I bet. And I, um, for that. And I was thinking, you know, no matter how many great paintings I could paint, I'm never going to get applause like this. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it also, you know, gr- the girls started dancing. I'm like, okay, well, you, it, that's not going to happen with a painting no. either. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I know which way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Made itself and pretty I was, obvious. I got the rock and roll bug, you know, early on and couldn't shake it. Not that I tried, but <laughs> I, uh, I just been a rock and roll fanatic since, since I was a kid and I had, I was fascinated with radio because my dad brought home he had all these parts down in the basement because he's a TV repairman. And, and he, I found a, uh, when the Beatles came out, I found a shortwave radio down in the basement and I dragged it up to my bedroom and I plugged it in and I could listen to the BBC and, um, oh, wow. Radio Luxembourg. And they had a different hit parade than they had in America. And so I was listening to like some obscure British hits oh, um, that weren't being played in America, And then I also, on my regular AM radio, I would, uh, listen to WLS in Chicago late at night. I would listen to the grand old Opry coming oh, live wow. from Nashville. Yeah. Late at night, you know, the, the ionosphere, you know, there's some of those stations, you know, there's the, the ones that had like 50,000 Watts. I, I could listen to, I, I listened to cousin Brucey all the time. Yeah. And I was a hundred miles away from New York city. <laughs> and I listened to him every night. <laughs> so, Jeez, Yeah. I was a fanatic, uh, like a, a true fanatic, like, people thought there was something wrong with me. Cause I, I was like from an, it was like I'd gotten, I was abducted by aliens and I couldn't communicate my, my enthusiasm very well. So they just thought I was like weird or yeah. possibly, you know, had a learning disability or something. Oh, no. yeah. but, and I, <laughs> and my grades of course went, you know, were not good because I was so distracted by music, but uh, yeah, it's been a lifelong, like I have to do this. There was never any, I mean I tried when I was you know a young adult when I got out of high school I tried having regular jobs and not being a musician and it, it just didn't work out. Oh no okay so was that the point where you really started thinking about making music a career? Well I got married and uh, was raising a kid when I was 20. Oh wow. Uh, so my rock and roll dreams um uh and, and not only that but when I graduated high school Aqua Lung by, uh, you know, f- by Jethro Tull and Emerson Lake and Palmer were huge and the Edgar Winter yeah. group. And, I, and it was like, I couldn't relate to any of that music like oh, Genesis. Man. And yes, and it was the kind of music I was never going to be a good enough guitar player to be able to play. I couldn't relate to it. So there really wasn't like a scene for me. It was pre-punk, you know? Yeah. You're in that Prague era. Yeah. So I mean there were a few bands like Flaming Groovies, the MC five and the Stooges, and I was nuts about them, but it was like having a career in rock and roll and trying to get a record deal at that time. I my tastes were like on the out way on the outside of what was being signed and what was being, you know, pursued. Right. So I just, you know, I worked as a landscaper and oh, then wow. I worked, um and I went to school at night and learned offset printing and I learned and I was working in a dark room, and I drove a a delivery truck in in Center City, Philadelphia. Oh
0: man! Now you see, now you're speaking my language. Working in a dark room, I was a photographer for years, and
1: uh, oh really? Yeah, working in the dark room is great. Oh, I
0: loved it. I loved it. I actually liked that better than work doing the studio. That was you could be by yourself in the studio, but man, being in the dark room, there's just I don't know, it's just something else.
1: What a great thing is, people have to knock before you, <laughs> you before they're allowed in. Yes. So I had a job, um, this was back when I drank a lot and uh, I would be hung over in the morning and I would just sleep in a dark room and, <laughs> and they would knock and I, and I would yell dark Yeah, and I would quick, t- I'd tidy up and get up and look, you know, look awake and I'd open the door and let them in. So it was a great job.
0: Oh man, that is awesome. Yeah. I, I remember having to do that. Uh, well back in college, you know, we had, you had your final projects do you'd spend all nighters in the, uh, dark rooms and on, on campus and the same thing, you know, people would be. Knock on your door to get into, this, into the dark room of the studio and be like, hey, it's my turn. All right. But I'd be asleep because I'd be working, you know, 12 hours in a dark room. I felt like a vampire half the time.
1: Well, also you smell like formaldehyde. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, like when you, you really have to wash your clothes because it just seeps <laughs> into your skin and your hair. Oh, man. And, so you're sort of like a zombie.
0: Oh, it is ridiculous. It's a oh, I had a, a professor, guy great photographer, a guy named Tom Lopez. And when you're working in the darkroom, you know, you, obviously, you know, you, you would have to use tongs and you, you know, you couldn't you wouldn't definitely wouldn't want to mix the chemicals you were using the tongs for cuz you put your fixer in the developer and that kills it immediately. Right. So Tom decided well, for, uh, well, back when he was, he was learning that he didn't like tongs, so he would just use his hands. Ooh. And eventually he got to the point where he couldn't sweat through his hands. I don't know what he did, what the chemicals did to his hands, but he lost some feeling and he, and he couldn't sweat in his, through his
1: hands. Wow. So, like,
0: so he, that's part of his lecture in, in one of his photo classes. It's like, use, use the tongs and gloves and all because I, I, I effed up my hands. I can't sweat and that's because <laughs> <it's laughs> wow. photochemicals. photochemicals. let that be a lesson to anybody uh still use a darkroom these days use use your safety equipment
1: that was another example though that darkroom now that i think about it i would listen to oldies radio uh down in the darkroom on a transistor radio and that was when um high lit was back on the air in philadelphia he was a really popular disc jockey in the 50s and 60s and okay. then it came back on the air in the early '80s, and I would listen to High Lit all day, and he played nothing but doo wop and '50s rock and roll. Yeah, and, uh, there was a big revival for that stuff back then. Yeah, well, Philly—you know, Philly is interesting because it kind of never left. Because everybody loves to dance in Philly; it's it's, it's a real thing. Yeah, it's, it's, dancing is probably more important in Philly than it is in any other city in America. It never stopped you know, going back to bandstand. Exactly. It never stopped. There, there were record hops and people would go out and, and dance to these pretty obscure doo-wop records that, you know, that, that have a real drive and beat to them. And uh, that's, that's what's really great about the Philly, South Jersey area is no matter what was going on with progressive rock or hippie music or acid rock or whatever, <laughs> you were always hearing really good oldies. And not the obvious ones, not the, like, right. <clears throat> Happy happy Days version of oldies, you know? Yeah, not Bill Haley. No, no, some one-shot wonder doo-wop groups. Yeah, like really Duques or something. Yeah, exactly. Which I love the Duques.
0: At what point did you form the Ben Vaughn combo? How did that come about, and, and how did you start recording? I mean, was, were you doing it independently, or were you offered a, a contract through gigging? You know, somebody saw you. How did that whole band and, and recording process coming out.
1: Well, I had a job as a paste up artist on a night shift. This keeps getting back to the printing business okay. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and a friend of mine in Washington, DC named Bruce Rosenstein. He had a um, mail order record company. And this was when punk and uh, independent records were hard to find. See, it wasn't Columbia
0: and, house. Was it? Cause I still owe them money. <laughs> no. Okay. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> For those eight tracks, that <laughs> yeah,
0: the ones they kept sending that I forgot to, because that was you had to mail them something back telling them you didn't want them to
1: send you stuff. Exactly, it's like it's like with all these subscriptions that you get a trial <laughs> offer on, they yeah. just start charging you. You know, it's up it's up to you to make it stop. <laughs> I,
0: I got in a lot of trouble with them because I would just write "return to sender" on this stuff and send it back to them because I would keep forgetting to. Mark off the little box and mail it back to him saying, don't send me another album. And then they they finally just ended up not sending me anymore because I just kept returning the sender. (laughs) That's how I got out of it. I think I, I still I do think I actually still owe them money, though. I think the statute of limitations might be up, though.
1: I don't think they're over there thinking about you. Just see it. You know, just... Ease my mind? Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean that's, that's my, it's only my take, though. I'm not, you know. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not this a lawyer. legal advice. A, I have a feeling, I'm not even sure if Columbia House ex- even exists I, anymore, so. I don't
0: know.
1: <laughs> a, and were they in a house? I say,
0: that's a good point. So maybe that could yeah. be fraud, and I might be
1: released of that's my true. obligations. You guys were in a, in a business park, so therefore...
0: You can't live I, there. You're not legally allowed to, so... Exactly.
1: <laughs> All right. <clears throat> no, but I, I, was, I was working as a, as a paste-up artist for this guy, Bruce, and um, he started the label, and he put out a record by a band from Springfield, Missouri, called The Morels. And this is really obscure stuff, but The Morels record, uh, he, he hired me to... Designed the, the 45 sleeve for this Morrell's record he was putting out. Oh, cool. And it was a really cool kind of bizarre looking cover and the band really liked it a lot. So when they came up to New York to promote the record, they were doing a bunch of shows in New York city and they told him that they wanted to meet me. So I got put in the, I was on the guest list at the peppermint lounge in oh, New York city, like wow. 19, 1981, I guess it was. I had never been on a guest list before anywhere. Right. <laughs> Big thrill for me. Yeah. And I drove, I drove up and it, I, be, I believe it was, it was February and my Rambler didn't, I, I was driving the 69 Rambler at the time and it had no heat. Ooh. So like I was wearing a down parka in, in long underwear driving my car <laughs> to New York city. And I go through the tunnel and I go up to 45th street and I park and I go to this club and my name was on the list which was a real thrill. I went back and met the band in the dressing room and, um, really nice guys. And they asked me what else I do. And I said, well, I'm actually a songwriter. And they're like, really? Cause you know, we don't really write songs. We, we do other people's songs. So send us a cassette. Oh, cool. So I sent them a cassette of my songs. And a week later I got a phone call and the leader of the band told me that they were They added five of my songs to their show, and they were going over really well, and they're going to record one of them for their next album. Oh, wow. Which they did. Every year when you buy your Christmas gifts, there's always one name left on the bottom of your list. Well, you can search and search in every store, but you won't find nothing that I ain't had before, because I'm the man. He's the man. And they came to New York City to play a bunch of shows and they were the darlings of like the Village Voice and the East Village Eye because they were from Springfield, Missouri and they were completely unaffected by uh, show business. They, you know, they looked like they had just finished working on their cars. They were real regular guys. Oh, you know? wow, nice. And, and they came up and played a bunch of shows and they played my songs and introduced me and I got up and sang with them a couple of times. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, and then uh, that uh, led to Ira Kaplan, who is in Yola Tango. Yeah, yeah. At the time, he was a Village Voice rock critic and he, uh, he was booking these Wednesday nights at a club in New York City and he booked me to play. And when I played, uh, the very first gig I ever did under my own name, I got written up in the New York Times wow so it happened like it was, it was like a and I, but i was already like 27 by then you know so it was oh, not like okay. an not really an overnight success yeah <laughs> but uh <laughs> but that, that led to me forming the ben von combo and then uh the violent Femmes manager fell in love with my music and oh, took nice. me on as a client and got me a record deal and everything got rolling and uh That's how it all started for me. I got a record deal and I started touring constantly.
0: And other people kept recording your songs like Marshall Crenshaw doing I'm Sorry, but it was Brenda Lee.
1: Marshall crenshaw recorded my song and um that that put me on the map because he was really well respected and he was on a major label you know yeah so that, so that was a big deal
0: and you've recorded with some amazing people so well not even just recorded. i mean you've you worked like okay there's Marshall crenshaw but you've also recorded with members of bell and sebastian uh you've worked with rodney crowell alan vega and alex chilton i mean these this there's a quite a list of of people that you've worked with and who've loved working with you that's amazing how did you actually start producing because the second combo album was produced by you and that kind of started your whole production side of, of of your career experience in production when, when you started doing that?
1: No. Um, <laughs> I, became a, I became a producer because I didn't like um, working with my first producer who produced the Violent Femmes. Uh, we, we, we were not a good match. And by the end of that record, the record came out okay. You know, it came out good. It, you know, people like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's going to be reissued uh, again in September of this year. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, for the first time ever. Digitally. It's never been available digitally before. Oh, really? I didn't even realize that. Yeah, it came out in 86 as an LP and, you know, went out of print about a year later. (laughs) 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 But uh, it was really interesting because my passion for music is so real, you know, whether you like my music or not doesn't really matter, but you can't deny that I'm passionate about music. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like that, like to the point where it's you know, it's kind of annoying to a lot of people. Like, you know, we quit talking about music. So like it or uh,
0: not, you got to respect it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And people like Alex and Alan Vega and Marshall, they picked up on that right away when they met me. And I wasn't like a fanboy kind of, I just assumed everyone was my contemporary, well, I, I assumed the posture of someone who believed that everyone was his contemporary. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you come on too hard, when you're a fan of someone, they they're guarded. And so, Absolutely. um, I, you know, my, my, I was kind of lucky that, um, my enthusiasm for all music, not just, you know, their music created a bond with a lot of, you know, a lot of people. I got a, a lot of work and I got a lot of, uh, I did a lot of things with people, be, because they, they just were attracted to my authentic love for music.
0: Yeah, exactly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So in 88, you, would, you would put out a solo album and not as Ben Vaughn combo. Why did you decide that at that point it was, it was just going to be you and not, not the combo?
1: Well, I toured... Being in a van with those guys would be the answer um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> for Excellent too long. Uh, the combo was together for five years, uh, from 83 to 88. And uh, the last two years of that, we were on the road constant. We were, we were on the road more than we were home. And we were in a van. Oh. We were in, in each other's company 24 hours a day and uh, underslept uh, underpaid. And, uh, we finally got to the point where it's like, okay, I know I'm going to continue head, you know, moving on because I'm still writing songs and I have a record deal. Right. And the other guy, and the other guy's are like, you know, I, we, we, we're really exhausted, man. This is too much, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and it's your, you know, it's like, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers or Bruce Springsteen and the E street band. You know? Right. I was doing all the writing and I was, I was getting most of the attention. So I could see if, unless you're making a lot of money being in someone else's band, doing their songs, the way they want you to do them. The shelf life is not long for that, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. The money wasn't rolling in. Now if, if we had like a hit record and the money was rolling in, we probably would have stayed together, but that, that wasn't the case.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Then you, so you release Ben Vaughn blows your mind and dressed in black Mono, the instrumentals, 89 to 91, and then instrumental stylings comes out, and that's when things kind of change for you if I'm I'm reading your history right. That's kind of what brought you into a new phase of your
1: career, right? That's true. That is true. I always wanted to make an instrumental record. I'm a fanatic about instrumental music, and I spent a lot of years back in the early 70s Mastering surf guitar, which was a dead language. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like speaking Latin, not just writing Latin, but speaking it. Yes, yeah. It was like it was like I was in the (laughs) Roman Catholic Church, you know, playing this anachronistic style and mastering it, and no one was buying it. The marketplace wanted to have nothing to do with surf guitar. Yeah, but I was just in love with the sound and artistry of it, and I spent. A lot of time uh, learning how to play in that style and writing music in that style, and none of that really made any sense in the marketplace <laughs> until Pulp Fiction came out. Yeah, oh yeah, and, that's right. And all of a sudden, I was in demand. Right and place, right time, time with, my, with the right sound. Exactly. I went out 1994. A music I put a record out on Barnon Records called Mono USA. <laughs> And on that record are four or five surf instrumental covers. And there was a woman, Carol Sue Baker. She was a music supervisor who was pitching the bar none catalog to film directors and music supervisors. Oh, okay. And she heard my music and she said, you need to come out to LA and have some meetings because there's a new movie that's getting, getting ready to come out. And when this movie comes out, it's going to be a huge hit, and everyone is going to want surf music.
0: (laughs) Man, isn't that amazing that they they knew ahead of time?
1: Well, what happened is, so it's the summer of 1990. Yeah, well, it was in 1994. I I fly out to L.A., and she gets me a private screening of Pulp Fiction. Oh, wow. In a, um, I guess it was the ICM agency that, you know, all the, all the agencies, they have little private theaters, yes. you know? Yeah. And so the two of us went in there, we watched Pulp Fiction. And when the lights came up, I said, you're right. This is going to be huge. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way this movie isn't going to be a game changer. man And uh, so I saw it a few months before it came out. And based on, on that, I actually packed up my car and drove out to LA and, and uh, ran an apartment
0: drove you your rambler all the way across country i sure did oh man i gotta tell you i i'm a fan of ramblers particularly the marlin that's oh that's, yes that is one of my dream cars if i can get a marlin little little like a modified little more reliable running gear i just i love that body style that is a gorgeous car
1: what's funny is that was a knockoff of the barracuda yes and and uh but it's better i Man, I, just, I love that car. <laughs> I, Marla, I Marla, Marlins are, are, are beautiful. I know where
0: there's one sitting in, I live in Winchester, Virginia, and I know where there's one sitting in somebody's front yard right now, just rotting away. It's, but it's like a, it's a little later one. It's like a 67, but I called on what? it and no one ever calls me back.
1: Let me, let me get a pen. What, what What's the address?
0: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, if we, hey, if we can gang up on them, we, we, we can take it. I'm pretty sure we can get it.
1: But you distract, you distract them. And I'll get it running.
0: <laughs> that is going to be a long haul distraction, right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Well, well, you know, you, you have time to prepare. That's
0: that's true. All right. That instrumental styling album is really cool. I mean, first okay. First of all, I love Battery Acid. That is just a great song. But I think one of the things that I think is great is you have a, a knack for great song titles and. Descafinado is, I, I love the Jobim reference there. It's just fantastic because I'm a big fan of Jobim and Desafinado is one of my favorites. I, I love the homage there. It's, it's just beautiful.
1: and it does sound decaf <laughs>
0: a little bit yeah I can,
1: a yeah yeah slightly
0: decaf version of him maybe yeah yeah, yeah. but <laughs> you also worked with dean ween on this
1: he's he does a vocal on stretch limo we which... Wien... oh no, i said, that's actually me singing oh is it um um he's playing all the all the guitar on it oh okay man i couldn't i, I obviously couldn't tell the which who was who on that but Well, I was singing through his fuzz box, so that that might have something to do with
0: it. Okay, Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Ween is one of those bands that I didn't get at first and it took me years. Now I'm in, I'm all in on Ween, but it took a long time for me to, and I can't even say understand Ween, but enjoy Ween, I guess is maybe the best way. Did you know him from, from the Jersey days? Cause they're from like the New Hope area, I think, right?
1: I did. Um, they used to come to, to City Gardens in Trenton and see me play. Well, at least Mickey did. That's uh, okay. Dean Ween. And... Um, they gave me a cassette, uh, back in the eighties. They were, they were, they were still in high school at the time. And they gave me a cassette and, and I believe I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, it was just them inhaling helium and laughing. <laughs> and I'm like, so this, this is it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, this is our new thing. Oh my God. <laughs> and so I was like, well, keep, you know, keep me updated. Yeah, i I'm interested, you know, and i eventually produced one of their albums but uh yeah those guys are geniuses they're yeah. really like uh they're channeling something so something. on such a yeah on such a uh, subconscious level they they they're like they're amazing they're really amazing it
0: yeah i mean when i first heard them the first thing i heard was push a little daisies and i was not a fan and then, like the, the mollusk came out, and and uh, chocolate and cheese, and and I know I'm getting the the years wrong. I'm sh- I'm sure, but the running order wrong. But Transdermal Celebration is one of my favorite tracks that they do. I just it took me a long time to get into them, but now that I'm into them, I'm into them. I just thought it was a really cool connection there because I until I started. L- researching this i didn't know that there was a connection between you two it's it's not an obvious connection
1: yeah i get maybe it isn't to uh, to me it is i mean like i you know it's i i've known them for so long like i don't even really remember how i actually met them you know we've known each other that long wow Uh, but the sense of humor and and the love for all types of music i mean they're into merle haggard as much as they're into ozzy osbourne yeah. Or Diana Ross, even, you know, oh, man. Uh, they're just all over the place. So Prince, They're a lot know. like you. I mean, they're, they're just passionate about music. Yeah. Yeah. We got along really well immediately. Working with those guys is just fan, a fantastic thing.
0: Back to instrumental styling. So we, we took a little detour there. But so that is what got you into doing music for
1: television and movies, isn't it? It is. Um, I put that album out. After I was, after I I visited L.A. and made my decision to move there, I wrote and recorded that album really fast, and I played all the instruments myself at my home studio in New Jersey. Okay, actually, it was Palma Do you know who Palma ran is? I knew. jockey on on uh, Underground Garage? Okay, she puts out records under her own name too. She had a studio at, uh, in New Jersey and in in the basement of her house, and I recorded that album really fast, and then I handed it over to Bar none and I hopped in my car and drove to California and the day I arrived in California a, a box of records arrived <laughs> okay <laughs> it was pre- it, it was pressed up and because of my touring days you know when I used to tour back in the 80s you would go to the club and unload all the gear and everything and do a sound check and then you would run over to the radio station which you know the local either college station or you know, uh, public radio and drum up business for the show, you know? Okay. Yeah. And every time I was in Dallas, I would visit a radio station there. And Chris Doritos was the host of this show in Dallas. And, and he would have me on and we became friends and stayed in touch. And when I moved to LA, he had taken over the morning slot on KCRW and had become a really big deal. Okay. Yeah. Everybody listened to Chris Doritos in the morning he had a show called morning becomes eclectic
0: yes i've yes i've seen a bunch of clips from that i think they would they play a lot but would, would bands play live on that oh yeah okay yeah that's that's right i've seen definitely seen clips of that
1: yeah he found out i was in town that i had moved to town so he invited me to come down and promote my new record and so we're on the air and he says, so why did you move to L.A.? And I said, well, I moved to L.A. to do TV and film music. So if there's anyone out there with a, a TV or a film project, call the station because I'm, I'm ready to work, <laughs> you know, and we laughed, you know, and then we he queued up another record and the phone rang and it was the president of Carsey Werner Productions. They did wow. Cosby and uh, yeah, uh, Sybil, uh, Roseanne, all these, you know, huge shows and it was the president of that company. She said, I was just driving in my car and I heard you on the radio. I want you to write down this address and I want you to come in for a meeting because we have a pilot that we're working on right now. And I think you'd be the perfect person to be the composer. Oh man. So I wrote down the address. I left the radio station and I drove up to studio city. You know, I I've been living in LA maybe two weeks at that point. Oh, geez. This is like a movie it's like yeah, a plot so, of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I drive up the studio city and go to the CBS lot there. And my name was at the gate and uh, they gave me a parking space. And I went into this building and everyone was waiting for me. They had sent someone out to buy copies of my album at tower records. I'll oh, see so you got some sales out of it too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Three, I think. Put you right over not the edge. I'm, yeah, not that I'm counting. Yeah. <laughs> And they were and they they were convinced, like I walked in the door, I already had the job, you know. Wow. And um, they gave me the job. They said we want you to be the composer for Third Rock from the Sun. And yes. they showed me the pilot and I was like, wow, if John Lithgow is in this, yeah, and Jane and Jane Curtin's in this, I'm in. Yeah. You know. Exactly. If they're willing if they're willing to do a sitcom. And, and this is probably, probably not, a, not a, like a, you know, this is probably a pretty intelligent sitcom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't
0: they come to earth in a rambler or something?
1: They did. And that's, that's the funny part of the meeting. <laughs> is, um, they're showing me the pilot and, and, I, and I see the rambler. I go, hold it, hold it, pause that tape. And they're like, what? I go, pause the tape. Like, why? And it's said. Like, look out because the, they gave me a parking space right next to the building I said come over here and look out the window and they look out the window and there's my Rambler yeah. I said see that car and they're like yeah and I go I drove from here from New Jersey in that thing and they're like oh my god you're definitely our composer <laughs> oh it was just meant to be it was kismet yeah well a friend of mine said you you arrived at the right time with the right sound in the right car yeah So everything you were just, you were a throwback
0: in the perfect spot. Everything about you you was a throwback in the perfect spot.
1: What a funny thing was what they said to me is, you know, we've been, they auditioned a bunch of composers uh, for this guys who were established people with agents, you know, and they all handed in that kind of like fern jazz, we used to call it, like. <laughs> oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Sax- saxophone or like a little guitar lick that was like kind of jazzy or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. Soft rock kind of, I don't know, you know. And um, they said, what we're looking for is American rock and roll as if played by aliens. And we think you're already doing that.
0: jennifer who claims to have actually met aliens
1: <laughs> <laughs> i love so that I was, yeah i was like i think that's a compliment yeah <laughs>
0: i'm gonna take I'm not it as one. Sure.
1: yeah i'm not sure <laughs>
0: <laughs> regardless i'm taking it as one yeah it so, was great so you how many shows did you i mean not counting because i know pilot season gets kind of weird with stuff that doesn't come out that work on but how many shows that actually made it did you end up working for because you were doing this for what, about 11 years was that Yeah, 11 years. So I know there was uh, Uh, Third Rock from the Sun, and I know there was that
1: 70s show. Yeah, uh, I was doing those. uh, Well, Third Rock from the Sun, and then I did a show called Men Behaving Badly. Oh, yes, I remember that show. So I went from uh, doing Third Rock, which went on the air and became a hit, and all of a sudden I got hot, you know? Yeah. And they offered me Men Behaving Badly, so I was doing two shows at the same time. And then that 70s show kicked off... I think I was doing three at a time. Oh my God. Plus I was doing pilots. I did a bunch of pilots whose names I can't remember, but a bunch of them like pilot seasons nuts. Like I would do three or four pilots in May. And um, yeah, it was a bit of a blur. I can imagine. Um, yeah. I, I did music for a show called Inside Schwartz, which was on <laughs> Fox, I think. I don't know. And it was on for two or three seasons. And I did a show called Off Center for the WB or the, yeah, the WB, uh, which was, I think, three seasons. Oh, wow. um, Yeah, like six and a half seasons of Third Rock and eight seasons of that 70s show. And I was working around the clock. I was basically working 14-hour days. Uh, I didn't have much of a personal life during that time.
0: Oh, I can imagine not.
1: Yeah, and I just accepted everything that was offered to me because I couldn't believe they were offering it to me. You know, I went from (laughs) from zero to like you know being hot. It was like um, it was it was pretty incredible, and I just um, I just you know coming from a poverty mindset, like I like I did. I would, I just accept it all work. And if, and I started hiring other people to deliver it for me while I, I just composed and I had music editors. I had a, my own production company with all these people working under me, which wasn't a was not a natural dynamic for me, but it was necessary. You know,
0: I can only imagine the pressure with that. Much. I mean, I, I imagine one show has a lot of pressure to it, but three at one time. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'd be, see, I would yeah. be afraid that I would just mix up songs and send, send the wrong song to the wrong show. That'd be my biggest fear. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Like you like men behaving badly. Why does this episode sound like <laughs> aliens? <Yeah.
0: laughs> American rock
1: done by aliens. What? That's, that's not what I wanted. It was great though, because it was so challenging and it was, um, you know, every day you wake up with a blank canvas and at the end of the day, you have to have like, you know, 47 pieces of music written and recorded and delivered. <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> It was awesome at first, and Yeah, then, uh, maybe about five years into it, I realized that I'm kind of repeating myself. Like, I, like uh, the challenges were becoming more and more familiar. You know, there wasn't a, yeah. the, the variety that I felt in the beginning. I wasn't feeling it wasn't there for me as much, but, um, you know, I, I, I uh, I loved it. It was really great because it taught me how to um, not have a writer's block for one thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, because if you have a writer's block, they fire you. Oh, God. Jeez, yeah. So you you have to write. It's like writing for a newspaper. You can't have a writer's block if you're a journalist. Right, for sure. On a daily newspaper, they, they'll just fire you and get somebody else who can handle it, you know? <laughs> so, when, so when they're coming to you with
0: ideas, and I imagine they're, they're just non they're giving you ideas in non-musical terms. How long are these, are the pieces that you're writing for them? Are they like, you know, a couple seconds? Are they
1: a minute? It depends on whether it's underscore or transitional music. And I would create a library of transitions and I would uh, have these marathon sessions where I'd I'd put a band (laughs) together. I I started out playing all the instruments myself and then I realized that this is going to take me forever, you know? Oh God, yeah. So I would write, I would write everything And make a little recording of it, like in just, you know, into a regular tape recorder sitting at the kitchen table with a guitar. Okay. And then I would gang all of those up and put a band in the studio and we would cut all these three second, eight second cues. And then we would record a bunch of long pieces because on that 70s show, every time they were down in the basement or they're at a record hopper or whatever, that's my music in the background. Oh, okay. Wow. Wow. So we had to create a lot of long pieces too for atmospheric music. So we would do these marathon sessions. So we, part of it is library where what you do is you pull, when you look at the episode, you pull from an existing library and plug things in. Okay. And then there were times when they wanted you to write something specifically for a scene, like it's a strip club or who knows, maybe it's a, you know, a movie they're watching on TV and they want it to sound like a certain thing. So are you writing things and
0: just kind of, cataloging them and, and waiting for them to be used or is everything is that, is that what, you, what you're talking about by pulling yeah
1: okay yeah yeah creating library uh, the most exciting part about it about my time working on sitcoms i don't know what it's like now um <laughs> is inventing the sound of the show okay it's so exciting because the show has no sound yet right okay right i see what you're saying and so, like with Third Rock from the Sun is a good example. If you were in the kitchen getting, you know, getting a, a drink out of the refrigerator or whatever, and you heard the music, you would know the show's back on. Yeah. Because it's like there's no way it could be anything else other than Third Rock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was for me, that that was the job. The job was to read the scripts, watch the pilot, maybe go to a taping of an episode and 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 talk with the writers and the creators a bit and then try to create a musical sound that is that show like Seinfeld when you hear pick a pick yeah you you know <laughs> what shows on tv yep and um for me that was the greatest because you definitely have a blank canvas and the pressure is really on and i loved it i loved it
0: because you were so busy at that time you thought it was a good idea to take your Rambler and turn it into a recording studio because <laughs> you must have had a lot of extra free time on your hands.
1: Actually, I recorded <laughs> that album before I left New Jersey. Really? Yeah. And oh, it sat in the can, it, yes. It sat in the can for two years. Wow. Actually, it actually came out in Spain right away. And well, you're big I there.
0: I remember that. You you be telling me that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, it came, it, it came out in Spain and, um, when I recorded that record in my driveway in my Rambler playing all the instruments. I would drag my studio out, set it up and record, and then drag everything back in <laughs> at night. <laughs> that was a challenge. I was bragging to a friend, like I could, I can, you know, I can make a good record anywhere. I could even make a good record in my car. And he goes, Yeah, we'll prove it. And I was like, oh man, okay. <laughs> 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 and uh I uh it's what's really funny at the time. I was telling everybody, you know, uh, that this is the, my way of, um, avoiding a midlife crisis. And as I look, as I look back now, I realize it was a midlife crisis. (laughs) Why else would a, would a, you know, a a guy who's getting ready to turn 40, be recording an album in his car, in his driveway. That's definitely a midlife crisis. (laughs) And And, you know, at the time, (laughs) When you're having a midlife crisis, one of the sure signs is that you're in denial that you're having one. Yes. That's the ironic part of having a midlife crisis.
0: I think that's what this podcast is. I think that's maybe my midlife crisis. Oh, I'm glad to help. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's such a cool album. I mean, Seven Days Without Love is great.
1: Seven Days Without Love makes one week. A man can stand on his own team. makes one week the first day it's quiet at home you're enjoying all your time alone the second day you're doing all right you're going out with your friends at night but the third day well that's uh, something else and
0: you're getting tired of being there, but it. you do have some weird stuff going on like levitation you got some, some crazy like sitar stuff going on in there and, and then heavy machinery is that it like an
1: engine in the an in, en, yeah an engine solo an engine so- <laughs> 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 when it comes to my love This is what you do,
0: isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's what a midlife crisis is all about: recording right. your
1: engine solos, picking the right mic for it, and, <laughs> and the placement. You know, how, how close, how far? Oh. Should it be in stereo with two mics? I mean, this is classic midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> you know, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't afford a new motorcycle, so I recorded an album in my car. But it's very very similar. <laughs> I
0: thought I, I heard of, you had you actually had two Rambler's that you were, you were considering using, you had to choose one or the other for the studio.
1: That's true. I had a 65 and I had a 64. The 65 wasn't running uh, very well. And I just bought the 64. So I did a sound check in both cars. I recorded the song <laughs> in both cars and I listened to them and the 65 sounded better. Interesting. Which, now, which one did the
0: uh, guitar solo, or the, the engine solo, excuse me.
1: 65, I had to get it running. Okay. <laughs> um, it stalled out and never started up again after I recorded that solo. <laughs> oh my God. That, yeah, that, right, was, like, so. that was its uh, crowning achievement, the Swan Song. Yeah, the last sound that that engine ever made is on that record.
0: Now, how many people can say that? I've had plenty of engines die on me, and I've never had the chance to record any of them.
1: Well, you know, you're, 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 you're living your life wrong, my I, friend. I am. <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. I got you know to, I got to walk around with
0: all my podcast equipment in my car. Now
1: you could do your podcast in your car. Uh, yeah. You
0: don't even tempt me. Cause my wife will kill me, but I might that. I think I've actually seen some people do that. I'm God. Now I'm thinking. She might not kill you cause
1: it'll get you out of the house. And that might be a good thing. That,
0: <laughs> she'd have to catch me first. Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> but so after you did this which this album is kind of considered a classic in your discography I mean not just in your discography but a classic just for the great songs but also the just the ingenuity I think of turning a car into a studio and it it, it sounds amazing it doesn't it doesn't sound like it was done in a car Thank you. After that, you, well, cause first of all, you made a film about it, which I thought was awesome. But then you did another, an, another odd album with Cubit's Blues with Alan Vega and Alex Chilton. <clears throat> How did yeah. that come together? And I think you knew Ale- did you know Alex Chilton before? Cause I think his, his song is, is, as the uh, theme for that seventies show, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That came later. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, when, um, I, I, knew, I met Alex, uh, we had the same booking agent, and in uh, 19, oh. you know, back in the 80s, Alex and I both had records coming out the same day, actually. Oh, wow. In, in 1987, I met Alex back in the early 80s, a uh, funny story, actually, I, I met him in like 1983, and um, his booking agent introduced us to each other, and I was looking for a record producer at the time, and Alex had produced The Cramps. And I thought that was good enough for me, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I gave him a cassette and, uh, he looked at it like he had never seen a cassette before. You know, he's like, Oh, this is interesting. Um, he goes, uh, are these original songs? He, he, he spoke very slowly and in a, in a very like almost Truman Capote kind of way. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so are these, uh, uh, originals? And I go, yeah. Original songs. He goes, great. Thanks. <laughs> and he put it in his pocket and I thought, well, this is going to go nowhere. Right. You know? And then, um, four years later, oh, gosh. we're, we're booked together on a tour. A lot of dates through the Midwest and I'm the opening act and he's headlining. And, um, the first sound check, he comes up to me and he goes, hi, Ben, do you remember meeting me? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I love your cassette. Oh, wow. Like, <laughs> Four years later, like, (laughs) like, like he, like it was almost like I just given it to him yesterday or something. I love (laughs) your cassette. Just got a chance to listen to it. Yeah. And we, we became good friends right away and we were going, you know, we would go to pawn shops and look for guitars and hang out. And, uh, you know, we were on tour together, so we, we got a chance to spend a lot of time together and then we would visit each other and each other's, he would stay, you know, I would go down to New Orleans and stay with him and he would come up to Jersey and stay with me. So we, oh, awesome. we we became good friends and, um, we really liked, we really, uh, enjoyed playing guitars together and sharing what we know. I learned a lot from him and he, uh, forced me to teach him some stuff that I, I don't know if it did him any good, but he, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he forced me to teach him stuff too. Yeah. And, um, I was. I also got to know Alan Vega. I was a huge fan of Alan Vega yeah. and Suicide. Big influence on me. Alan Vega put a record out in 1980 called Jukebox Babe. Yes. That, to me, was the beginning of what modern rockabilly for me. It was like, oh, you can take the elements of rockabilly, but just play on one chord, keep it hypnotic, and just get that feeling, and not not worry about having a real upright bass or trying to be Elvis or anything. You you can take it into a a more original area. And that record just blew me away. So I went to see him play and I was always kind of fearless. I would just go into the dressing room and just introduce myself to people I like. And I'd either get kicked out or they would welcome me either. way, I didn't care which way it went, you know? Yeah. It was going to go one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I did that with Alan Vega and I did it with the violent fans. That's how I got to know them and, wow. and their manager. And, um, but I do, I did it with Alan Vega and we stayed in touch and I was sending him cassettes before I ever had a record deal. Okay. He tried to get Rico O'Kasic to produce me actually at one oh, wow. point. Uh, that didn't happen. But, um, finally, Alan and I decided to make a blues album together in New York. And this would be in 1994. And uh, I mentioned it to Alex. I was talking to Alex on the phone and he sa- he asked me what I was up to. And I said, well, you know, next week I'm going to be, I'm going to be producing Alan Vega, you know? And he goes, you're kidding me. I love Alan Vega. I said, oh, you're a fan. He goes, I love Alan Vega. He goes, what are you doing? I said, next week in New York. He goes, can I play on it? <laughs> And I was like, well, there's no money to fly you up because I'll pay for my own fare, man. I, wow. Th- I, 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 I'm a huge fan. I would love to, I would love to do this. Oh man. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And, um, those two had met at CBs back in the seventies. Uh, okay. so they sort of knew each other and we got together and, and, uh, two nights, we played all the instruments, the three of us, and we cut the whole thing live. Wow. And, uh, yeah, just completely improvised, like a jazz record, you know?
0: Oh, that it's such a strange album. I love it. It's Cubist Blues, and so Freedom and Too Late are probably the highlights for me, but I absolutely love like, the, the rumbling and the, the straight-up feedback of, of Candyman and Promised Land. It's, it's
1: such a unique album. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. And Alan's voice is like an instrument. I mean, you know, the human voice is an instrument, but in his case, he's like a saxophone or a trumpet or something. Cause a lot of times it's not lyrics. It's just him moaning or, you know, doing something. Yeah. And, uh, we, we, we leaned in and listened to Alan and we followed him. Wow. And, uh, We did two live shows to promote that record when it came out. It came out about a year or two later. Everything is funny because I recorded that and instrumental stylings and Rambler 65 all within like a two month period. Jeez. And then I hopped in my car and went to LA and all those records started coming out after I had left New Jersey.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I was going through the catalog and do my research and I saw Glasgow time. And you've got a song on there that I have know a little bit about, but I was kind of surprised that after so many years you decided to record the song Houseboat.
1: Oh, wow, yeah. And I have a wish Everybody has a wish If my
0: Why that song on that album, and is it much different from when you first wrote it? Because I think that's, you said that's the first
1: song you ever wrote, right? Uh, it's almost, yeah, about okay. the second or third song I ever wrote. I wrote it in 1975, maybe. Wow. Um, I was just learning how to be. You know what's really interesting about that song? I wrote it, and the lyrics at one point are almost identical to In the Street by Big Star, which I had never heard yet. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't, gosh, I didn't even put two and two together. Not a thing to do but talk with you. Oh wow! Yeah, I was on a on that path, you know. Yeah. Um, And um, yeah, I wrote that song. You know, I was like twenty years old, and I was learning how to be a songwriter. I wasn't really a very good songwriter yet. I was still learning how how to actually put chords together and melodies, and the lyrics were not coming together as easily yet. But um, when that song, they did. That was the first song I wrote that I didn't mind showing people. Ah, okay. But I never recorded it. And so we were in Glasgow, and I was working with the Teenage Fan Club guys and um, the Bell and Sebastian guys, and that was a connection through Alex. Alex introduced me to all those guys. Uh, But apparently I had a record, um, I put a single out in 1985 called My First Band. (laughs) My first band back in 1967 We practiced the corner from a 7 11 First, yeah. first, record, the combo ever put out the Ben Bon combo. And that became a dance club favorite in Glasgow. Oh, wow! And it got, it got released on a, on a local label there. A guy started the label for the, for the purpose of putting my 45 out. Oh, wow. Uh, That's a awesome. label called a label called 53rd and third records, which is a Ramon song, 53rd and third. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so I had this popularity in Scotland waiting for me that, and this was before the internet. So I didn't know about it. I didn't know about (laughs) any of this, you know, there was no way to know unless somebody wrote wrote you a letter and you read it, you know? And so I didn't find out until Alex mentioned me to, um, all the musicians in Glasgow saying, you know, that, he was always promoting me, you know? And, uh, and they said, Oh, we're very aware of him. Is he, <laughs> and then one guy said, is he still alive? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like some legendary blues musician right. from, from, you know, yesteryear who would, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so and A- Alex said, Oh yes, he's very much alive. And here's his phone number. And I got this phone call oh, from uh, Francis McDonald and, you know, with that great Scottish accent, hello, are you Ben Vaughn? This is Francis McDonald. Yeah. i was wondering if you'd like to come over and do some shows, you know. Ah, and ah, uh, that's great. I went over and we, we, we played some shows. And, he, and then he, he suggested, why don't we just go into a studio and record? And I had some new songs written. And then we were sitting around and he said, you know, what's the first song you ever wrote? And I said, well, you don't want to hear that one, but. <laughs> The third song I wrote and I played it on guitar. We're sitting in the, the uh, lobby of the uh, recording studio and I played it. And, and next thing you know, we went in, into the tracking room and we recorded the song really fast. So, okay. So you,
0: you had a, a club hit in Scotland. You also ended up having a, a dance hit in, in Italy. So you're, you're internationally fantastic when it comes to dance music.
1: Apparently. <laughs> I it- can't relate to, I can't relate to a lot of, uh, what happens, <laughs> you know, like I've had success happen to me where I'm still not sure exactly what, what I I'm experiencing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of weird, but, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been really lucky that, um, you know, the people who get a chance to hear my music and I'm an artist, you know, some of your listeners are not going to know who I am. And I'm i I'm aware of that. When you mention my name, you're either going to get like, oh, wow, I love that guy, or who? Right, yeah. (laughs) And and mostly who, and um, which is okay with me. I was never really looking to be Elton John or anything. Right. But um, I'm lucky that when people do get a chance to hear my music, it usually goes down well, and people people like it.
0: Oh, yeah. Now, you've got a couple things going on. You've got a, a radio show that you've been doing for quite a while now. And you've got a new album coming out. So, which one do you want to tackle first? (laughs) Let's go with the radio show. How did you get started doing a a radio program?
1: When I was living in Jersey, WXPN started a syndicated show called World Cafe, which became huge. But at the time, they were just building it out. And they asked me uh, if I would come in and uh, pick some. You know the roots of rock and roll, kind of records like a Staple Singers record, or play a Bill Monroe song to Elvis influenced Elvis or whatever. Okay. They wanted a the resident musicologist, basically, and I had a presentable enough speaking voice, <laughs> <laughs> and they with with uh, not too much of a Jersey accent. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and uh, hey, check so out I this started, song over here. Yeah, well, I, when I started, I probably sounded more Jersey than I do now. But uh, but um, I would go in and record these segments and host them, and um, and I got the bug, you know. Like I was a radio fanatic when I was a kid. I, yeah. Like when I was a kid, I wasn't sure if I was going to be a musician or or a disc jockey, you know, or a songwriter. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wanted any of them would have been fine. Any of those job descriptions would have would have made me happy. I just wanted to be around music all the time. And being a DJ, I really, really respected DJs, especially back in the Freeform FM days and uh, became friends in Philly with David Dye and Michael Tiersen, the guys I listened to when I was growing up. I became friends with them.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: Again, because of the love of music, you know, and there's like a kinship when you meet somebody and you're crazy about music that just kind of like, it's like an instant friendship, Mm -hmm. you know? And so XPN, when they were doing that, David Dye asked me to come in and record these things. And when I moved out to LA in 95, KCRW asked me to be the fill-in guy. I would do um, the Red Eye show, which was midnight till four in the morning, Oh God! <clears throat> which I loved because the phone calls you get are so weird, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, and you can play anything you want. Oh, that is great. And, and then you're just answering the phone and insomniacs and people who are high on, on something or other. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And uh, it was, uh, yes, yeah, so I always loved it. And WEVL in Memphis, I always had a, a, a good fan base in Memphis. When I played there, that was one of the few cities in America where I could sell out a club every time I, I showed up in town. And I went down there to, for a visit, and they asked me if I wanted to guest DJ just for fun. So I did. And I went through their library and I picked out a bunch of stuff and I got on the air and the response was really great. And they asked me if I wanted to do a remote show, send them, I would send them a CD (laughs) Um, every week. I would, I had a recording studio here in LA that I was using to do TV music. And so I, I started doing a weekly radio show in Memphis they put me on drive time on Fridays. Oh wow. And uh and and it it picked up, you know, became successful pretty quick. And so I decided to approach WXPN and see if if they wanted to help me syndicate the show. Okay. And uh they went for it and um they were the second station to air me and I'm on 28 stations now. Oh cool. And uh, and it's available as a podcast and the podcast is actually more popular than terrestrial radio. People are really, um, I have a really great listenership. They binge listen to my, (laughs) to my show. That is great. Yeah. And I'm playing records that are not usually played side by side for one thing, because I'll play bluegrass and I'll play punk and bossa Nova and jazz. And then, you know, a folk record and then, uh, you know, blues and soul yeah. and then a reggae record. And then I got an international record, you know, by yeah. Edith Piaf or something. Oh, awesome. And, uh, and so those kind of programs, there aren't that many of them out there. So I don't, I don't have much competition. Yeah. And, uh, the audience for that sort of thing are really enthusiastic and I get some really great messages, you know, uh, emails and messages and comments. Based on my playlist, it's really nice.
0: Oh, that is fantastic! I love hearing that. I'm,
1: I'm in a room right now filled with records, so this is what I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would be playing these. I would be playing these records without a radio show or or with one. It doesn't matter.
0: I know the feeling. I've I've got. I've, yeah, well, I can't. Say, I've actually had to move them, but I've got. I would say I'm I'm hovering close to four thousand CDs all over in different spots in my house. So wow, and then I've got a bunch of vinyl, but. I have mostly CDs. Vinyl, I'm afraid to play anymore. I just get... I I do what a lot of people do at this point, and they buy it for the collectability, and it's got to be something I really want, because I'm just... I don't know, I'm just very...
1: Yeah, my my vinyl collection is probably worthless because I play it. I actually (laughs) play my records. So, like, if I ever wanted to sell this, or if a collector ever came over here they would be like oh my god.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I also uh. don't really have anything to play it on. I've got a turntable here somewhere. It's but it's one of those that you can just plug into your computer and turn and and turn your vinyl into a digital file. So I don't know exactly if it'll play real well on a stereo, so I, I don't even that's the only turntable I've got and I'm not even sure exactly where it is. I think my son took it. <laughs> Cuz he loves that stuff too. So he may be the next ben vaughn but
1: for his sake i hope not
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a race with the devil
1: oh hey there you go i
0: see what you did there so you got a new album the world of ben vaughn and yes is that your rambler on the cover
1: it is that's the same rambler i recorded the album in i actually had it towed out here oh wow Do you secret location? Well, not, not towed. It was actually on a uh, flatbed truck with a couple other cars that had to be delivered to the LA area from New Jersey. (laughs) But uh, we brought it out here to, to shoot the Rambler video. We shot the Rambler video out here. Oh, okay. And we needed the car. So we sent it out. And, um, I have a house out in the Mojave desert. Uh, I bought a house in the Mojave desert in 1998. And I had, uh, the car towed out there and it now sits on my property. (laughs) And (laughs) as part of the directions that when I give people direct, my house is really in the middle of nowhere there. You can't see the nearest neighbor. Oh, that is awesome. I'm jealous. So when I give people directions, I say, you know, turn left at the Rambler.
0: (laughs) Oh man. Okay. So I'm going to start off kind of, I guess maybe backwards here at this point, because well, I don't see when I listened to it, and I was sent the the music. It all came in alphabetically, so I have to look up. I have to look out how it was sequenced because I'm not. I've, I've been listening to it, but I've been listening to it in the absolutely wrong running order. Oh wow, that's and interesting. Didn't even realize it until I just I actually was pulling everything up for the uh tonight to record with you and i'm looking and, and i'm like wait everything i was listening to is in alphabetical order this that's not how it runs at all so track eight you're gonna wish love was never invented i absolutely love the tone on that guitar and the the, the solo is that is awesome
1: mm-hmm. oh no on your door guitar Tell them how I feel. Say it again. You're gonna wish love was never invented. You're gonna wish love never knocked on your door. Think about
0: it. That sounds well, thank like you. Great, you know, classic rock. I mean, it, that's got like a, a great like Jimmy Page feel to it. I I, I love that solo. It is so good.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Are, are you using vintage equipment or is it new? Stuff? Combination. Okay. A combination. Um, it was recorded. I, I played all the instruments myself on the record. Oh, okay. and um, and I recorded it at my, at my home studio. Uh, two places actually my apartment in Santa Monica and my house out in the desert, which is the relay shack where I do my radio show. Oh, okay. So I, I um, recorded in both places and I have like portable equipment. that was, was, I'm still throwing equipment in my car and driving. I don't know. <laughs> <what's>, <laughs> I, <laughs> you would think, you would think by now that I wouldn't be doing that anymore, but I still am. You would have learned your lesson, but no, nope. Yeah. It's a combination. I mean that that record, um, yeah, I recorded everything myself. I'm playing uh you know, bass drums, uh, guitar, keyboards, oh, I think awesome. yeah, two harmonica songs on there, banjo, twelve string guitar. Man, that's a pretty good variety of stuff on there.
0: I love the advice of Nobody Likes a Show Off. I think it's a great song. I'm gonna I'm playing I'm gonna play that for my kids a lot. <laughs> Remember this, listen, keep this in mind. But I also love the sentiment of New Jersey rock and roll because I know exactly
1: what you mean. There's a pain in my heart A pain in my soul Thoughts in my head I can't control The way I feel Couldn't be more cold I need some New Jersey rock and roll. Rock and roll. Yeah, it's a song about being homesick, you know. And uh, I lived out in California briefly back in 1980. Um, when I was getting divorced, I came out here to kind of get my head together, which did not happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had like a, a lost weekend out here. Oh. And, um <laughs> I remember uh, I was never a big. F- I like Springsteen, okay, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love him as a person more than I like his music, you know. Okay. And, um, but I, I was never a fan of the saxophone being so dominant on his records. You know, I. You were like the only person
0: that I think says that besides me, because I feel I've I've always felt the same way. My brother is an enormous Springsteen fan, and we we've had this discussion all the time, and and that's kind of the same thing I've. I've always been more of a guitar guy myself and the saxophone being right up front all the time. It's just not my thing.
1: Yeah. And I, I, so I was out here in 1980 and I was walking down the street at night, you know, and I was very homesick and a car pulled up to a red light and stopped. And it was a Springsteen song with a sax solo. And I realized, wow, I even missed that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's homesick right there.
1: Yeah, that's how homesick I was. Like I would go back to New Jersey and listen to to like long Springsteen sax solos if I could. Right now,
0: Rosalita. Yeah, Uh.
1: yeah. (laughs) So uh, that's that's that was the um, uh, that uh, that memory of that. Well, actually, New Jersey rock and roll is funny because there was a review or something online written about the smithereens. And they said, oh, you know, where well, they're in that grand tradition of New Jersey rock and roll. And I laughed out loud because I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like New Jersey rock and roll, there is such a thing. And I thought that was the funniest phrase I'd ever heard. <laughs> so I, and I, and then right away, I was like, oh man, this connects to that homesick moment. This is, you know, and it just all, all came together really fast after that. With that New Jersey rock and roll feeling, I I, I hear that what
0: you, the New Jersey and I, I mean like you said I never really thought of a New Jersey sound other than Springsteen that's the only thing I really associated with New Jersey but that northeastern New Jersey New York kind of feel if you want to broaden it a little bit I can hear that in the song you released for record Dancing In My Mind Definitely hear a bit of the
1: Northeastern
0: rock in that.
1: Yep. Well, you know, <laughs> but that's what those are. Those are my roots. Yeah. And I, like, and I grew up, I grew up, I grew up playing in bar bands, you know, uh, uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah. New, New
0: Jersey bar band. It seeps into you, I guess. And then Wayne Fontana was wrong. That's a great song by both you and Wayne Fontana.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: So, <laughs> so I really have enjoyed all of this this album, it's just such a, it's just a really nice album to listen to. It's it's, it's very easy to listen to. I, I don't have to be in a certain mood to listen to it. I can just put it on no matter what I'm feeling. So that's one of the things I really like about it. And I'm going to actually try to listen to it in the correct running order from now on. So maybe I'll get an even different, a, a different feel for the
1: album when I actually listen to it the way you actually want me to listen to it. Yeah, you might, you might. Or, or you know what? I'm, I'm aware now that, that, you know, a la carte listening is how most people listen Yeah, and how most people buy music. They don't buy an entire album, they'll buy one song. And so the availability, I know that this, you know, reshuffling is happening. It, it's out of my control once it leaves me right? And, in the marketplace and, and in the listener's iPod or I just showed my, I just showed my yeah. age there. I,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> ipod oh, <laughs> that's,
0: that's true <laughs> well you could have said it when you, when they get the cd and hit the shuffle button
1: yeah exactly
0: that's when that started for me i thought that was the coolest thing ever like oh my gosh i can listen to this and just random songs pop up this is great
1: yeah exactly
0: i've kept you for quite a while at this point where can people find the album how can they purchase it and follow you uh, and, and check out your po- your radio show and the podcast. How can they get the whole Ben Vaughn experience?
1: Well, the radio show is called The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn, and it's available everywhere you can get podcasts. I mean, iTunes, Google Play, um, Stitcher, you know, everywhere. Right. Very easy to find. The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. My album is available on uh, iTunes and Bandcamp. It will be. Uh, it, yeah, available iTunes, Bandcamp and all the, all the usual places, you know? Okay. It's, uh, the marketplace is pretty easy to access now for independent artists. And I'm doing this all on my own now without a record company. And it's great.
0: Oh, wow. That's gotta be liberating.
1: It's great. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a social media presence where people can follow you? I do. Um, my website is benvon.org. Don't go to benvon.com because somebody Else has that, and they're pretending to be me right now, which is really something. I have a lawyer uh, trying to stop because they're they're talking about food and and, and favorite uh, you know vacation places. Like, <laughs> oh my, what? <laughs> it's very weird. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I think I just sent your listeners to that because it sounds interesting, but it's not <laughs> not that interesting. It's not nearly as <laughs> interesting as Benvon.org. Yeah, Benvon.org is where. All information about me is, and also um, I'm on Facebook, The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn Facebook page, and that's about it. I'm on Instagram uh, intermittently on this. I keep forgetting I have it. (laughs) That's my favorite one. I love Instagram. Yeah, I'm on there as Ben Vaughn or as Ben Vaughn music or The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. Okay.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for spending so much time with me and entertaining all my questions and and telling me some great stories. I absolutely loved hearing about. I mean, it's such a unique career arc. It's just it's it's fascinating to me.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a, it's it's really uh, it's been an interesting career, and it's um, continues to surprise me, and always it always has. It's it's really been satisfying in that way. Oh uh, well, I hope it keeps
0: going for you because I'm really enjoying it. I got into you late, so I'm going. I'm going back and listening to to the uh, discography, and I'm really, really liking it.
1: Well, thanks, man. I'm really glad to hear that. And thanks for taking that time and uh, and also for this interview. It was a lot of fun. me how does a heart that's broken never mend asking asking for a friend and how many days With nights that never end Asking Asking for a friend